Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, that's okay. You can open up to page 1328 in the Pew Bible. 1328 in the Pew Bible. And uh, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, not only not with you, but period. If you don't have a Bible, uh, why don't you just take that one that you're using? We want you to have it, and uh, we've got some extras. We can, we can refill the pews, but I'd rather it be in your hands all week than sitting in here all week. And so we want you, if you don't have a Bible, and if you, uh, you know, don't want to carry a pew Bible around all the time, that's okay. Just come ask me, and we'll get you a Bible. We want to make sure everybody has a copy of God's Word. So we'll, we'll make sure anyone who needs a Bible has a Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. And as you're uh, opening there, as we prepare to hear the Word of the Lord, I do want to say what a joy it was to have church outside the walls last Sunday. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of people go through a lot of hard work. Uh, to make that a success, but it really was. We had a lot of first-time guests and folks we're following up with, and uh, nonetheless, it was just a good time to fellowship together. And uh, I know how much you all love to spend time together and, and eating together and enjoying good food together and fellowship together, and so it was a good, blessed time uh, to get to do that. So um, anyway, thank you to everyone, and thank you so much, First Baptist family. I, you know, we love our facility and love the opportunity we have to worship like we do here, but but thank you all so much for your love and your patience in just doing something really different on a Sunday morning. You, you'll never know what an honor it is to me as your pastor, how well uh, you guys handle uh, adversity like that, just worshiping in a park. And so there's a, there's, there's a few things we recognize. Man, isn't this nice one day a year? And, uh, and then also, man, there's a reason we have a building. And uh, so yeah, I love it one day a year. It's so nice, but we are thankful that God's given us walls and and the ability to heat and cool and all those things. So we, we thank God uh, to be back here today as well. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me, if you don't mind, out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. 
For this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask you even now, would you please open our hearts and open our minds to receive your word. And God... Our prayer is that we would be changed by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Where is glory found? Where do we find glory? Let me ask you this question, is glory always in the bright and the flashy? Is it always in the glitzy and the glamorous? The thing, are things always the way that they look? I've learned over the years that just because things don't look glorious doesn't mean they aren't. And just because something looks glorious doesn't mean that it is. In fact, so often the way things look on the outside are unreliable to us. I'm sure you've heard it said more than once, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't, don't judge a book by its cover. I, I, I bet you've heard the phrase before too, don't, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. In other words, we, we need to kind of know more about a situation uh, before we uh, jump into it. Things are not always as they seem on the outside. One time, I was talking to a, a more seasoned pastor than myself, and we were talking about uh, something that looked glorious from the outside. And he said, I'm going to be honest with you, Matt. I'd weigh that uh, rather, than, rather than measure it with a measuring tape. I'd weigh it. And what he was saying is, from the outside, it looks like there's a lot going on, but it, it might not be as heavy. There might not be as much there as you think. Perhaps glory is in the more simple and the more everyday things that we tend to ignore, that, that we tend to think are, are ho-hum and, and basic and simple. You see, sometimes even we wonder why our Christian life, is less glorious than we think it should be? Why are we not seeing all the things we wish we could see? And uh, I would, I would, uh, especially in my early years here at First Baptist Church, people would ask me, what's going on? What's the Spirit up to at First Baptist Church Gadsden? And sometimes it would feel like, a little bit like, is the Spirit doing anything at First Baptist Church Gadsden? You know, it got on my nerves. And, uh, I would say, well, you know, we've got um, a lot of folks in our church 
who have loved their spouse, who have loved their church for 40, 50, 60 years. So there's one thing the Spirit's doing at First Baptist Church Gadsden. You know, I, I, I want to see what the Spirit's doing. One of my favorite quotes on revival is, if you want to know if you had a revival or not, wait 100 years. So it's a good thought. And, and, and we're in such an era of immediate return and, and, and an immediate look and return on investment that we miss the way that glory is so often displayed in the things that seem so simple. The things that seem so basic. This morning, I, I want you to take courage. I, I want you to be encouraged. And we'll talk a little bit more about encouragement next week in 2 Corinthians because Paul takes this passage and says, do not lose heart. But, but I want to go ahead and preview this because that's part of the goal for this text. Part of what Paul wants his hearers to do is to not lose heart. And so maybe this morning you're on the verge of losing heart because you thought life would look different than it looks. You, you, you thought things would look different than they look. Your life feels less than, less than glorious. This morning, I want you to take heart. Don't lose heart. Take courage. Because there's a lot more glory in Christ than we even realize. And, and there's a much more glory in the everyday action, in the everyday basic walk of walking with Christ than we could ever imagine. In fact, this morning, what I want to do is I, I want to just show you three things that, that will help you see where God's glory is to be found. And so if you're seeking glory... If, if you're looking for glory, we don't have that sort of thought quite like people used to. One of the things Abraham Lincoln was so frustrated about when he was a young man was that he, he didn't thought he would live in an age where he could do glorious things like the founders did. Well, he got his opportunity. <laughs> he got his opportunity, probably not the one he necessarily wanted. We don't, we don't always think about seeking glory, maybe like, previous generations did but but trust me every one of you here is at some level or another looking for glory because you were made for it and so this morning i i just want to show you three things to help you understand where you can find god's glory and to uh, live a life that's reflective of god's glory so three three things I, I want to show you this morning here's the first use the law like it was intended use the law as it was intended. If you want to find God's glory, you need to use the law as it was intended. Let's back up just a little bit into verse 6. Paul's talking in this passage back into verse 6 of chapter 3. He's talking a little bit about the sufficiency that he has as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that sufficiency comes from God. And he says, God has made us sufficient to be members, ministers, of a new covenant not of the letter that is not of the law but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life now some might encourage you to think that this is talking about the scriptures the all of the the totality of the scriptures but but i think context proves to us that paul's actually talking about the law especially as he begins to talk about moses he's talking about the law the the letter 
kills. And he goes on to say something even more profound than that. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Isn't it fascinating to see Paul here talking about the giving of the law? And, and for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. Let me just tell you a little bit about the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, now listen, if you ever watch TV on Easter Sunday afternoon, you know what I'm talking about. You probably saw the Ten Commandments, okay? The Ten Commandments, right? And so Moses comes down off the mountain where God had given him the law, and the Bible teaches us that God actually actually inscribed the Ten Commandments in, on stone tablets. Now, there's a lot that goes on there, but, but that's enough to know and understand this situation. And as Moses came down off the mountain, he had these tablets of stone that were the law of God. What God expected, how God expected His people to live. The moral standards of our Creator. Paul calls this a ministry of death. He calls this giving of the law a ministry of death. And he goes on to reflect on Exodus chapter 34. When Moses would come off the mountain, the Bible teaches that his, he had spent time with the Lord there on the mountain in the presence of God and his face would shine and that Moses veiled his face. The people couldn't bear to look at him. Now, we don't know exactly why he veiled his face. If you go back and actually read the Exodus text, it's, it's not clear that, that Moses was veiling his face so the people couldn't see the glory. In fact, it seems like Paul believes, and some commentators believe, it seems like perhaps Moses was veiling his face so the people couldn't see that the glory was fading. Seems to be something that Paul's indicating. Nonetheless, Moses would veil his face so that people could not see the full nature of the glory of, of what's being revealed in the law that's reflected in Moses' own face. And so it's fascinating then that even though there was glory in the law before, it's no longer there. Paul seems to indicate that the fading of the glory on the face of Moses is indicative of the temporary nature of the glory of the law. And so you might ask, and I think it's a good question, I think this kind of begs the question, What is the problem with the law? What, what, what's the issue with the law? Why would Paul call this? Now, what, I believe with all my heart that the Ten Commandments are the Word of God. I believe Moses was meeting with God. I, I believe every jot and tittle of the Old and the New Testament are the very Word of God, breathed out. I don't like to pit, I, I, you know, I, I don't like to pit the words of Christ against the words of the rest of the Bible. That's a surefire way to get in some error in terms of the way we interpret the Bible because all of the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit all of the scriptures are the word of Christ in fact one of the first things Jesus teaches his disciples post resurrection is he teaches and he walks with them on the road to Emmaus and he demonstrates to them what how all the scriptures testify about him all of the Bible is the word of Christ. All of the Bible is the word of the Holy Spirit. It's all inspired. And so why would Paul call this then a ministry of death? Well, the problem with the law is us. The law of the Lord is perfect, the Bible says. 
you know, this afternoon, if you want something to do, just go read the 119th Psalm. Now, you're going to be in for a ride. It's a long psalm, right? It's the longest chapter in the Bible. But the whole, the whole 119th Psalm is an acrostic poem about the law of God, about the Word of God. So each section of the poem starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes all the way through and talks about how the law of the Lord is perfect. It's beautiful. It's like honey. We. The problem's not the law. The problem's not God's Word. The problem is us. The only problem with the law is our inability to keep it. You see, those, those uh, who keep it live by it. There, there, there's nothing wrong with the law. In fact, it's a perfectly good way to live. The problem with the law is not the law. The problem with the law is that we can't keep the law. And, th- and that's Paul's point throughout his writings is that God is perfect and God has given us this perfect law, but our sin keeps us from living it out perfectly. The letter kills. And then the problem becomes that we continue to go back to the law, thinking it'll be different this time. I want to ask you this morning, are you looking for glory in the wrong place? Are are you looking for glory in the law? And if you're looking for glory in the law, then what you're doing is looking for glory in your own good works. you're, You're seeking out then the glory of man. And, and don't believe for a moment that there is not a tendency among our people. Now, I'm from northeast Alabama, too. I'm from Boaz. I grew up in church. I tell you all, all the time I'm a recovering Pharisee. I know what it is to try to go to the law for righteousness. And to believe. You know what? The, the, most, the most hubris that's involved in it is not just to go to the law, but to think that you're doing it. And I've been there in my life where I believed that I was supplying my own righteousness. I, I believed that I was doing a really good job of being a Christian. Now think about the irony and the pride and the hubris of thinking that we could do a good job of being a Christian. You, you, don't, you don't do a good job of being a Christian. You get made into being a Christian by the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, through the restorative work of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have so many people, not only in the Bible Belt, who are being Pharisees, but brothers and sisters, don't think for a moment that in a broader secular culture that there are not folks that are seeking out the glory of man and the glory of really their own law. Here in America, we can do all we, all we, we can try all we want. We cannot escape the Bible. Folks claim to be totally secular, but you still, you, you go look and see the kinds of things that people praise and the things that people value, and they're 100% inherited from a Christian worldview. Ancient cultures didn't tend to value selflessness like we value selflessness. Pride and honor, sure. But but Romans were not people who valued selflessness. Vikings, our, our forebears were not people who valued selflessness. But, but I hear a lot of language these days about people just being a good person. And, and I even hear things like, I, I see memes and stuff on the internet, you know, little graphics that have a, little terrible parables in uh, graphic form. 
And uh, they say things like, you know, I don't need a Bible to tell me how to be a decent human. You know, I just do a lot of things that I learn from the Bible, and that makes me a decent human. I, I hear a lot of language about just, just be a decent human, just, just value love, just, just do these things. And then what happens every time some celebrity or, or someone else falls or does something terrible, anytime somebody stops being what our culture perceives as a decent human, what happens? Everybody, everybody flips out and says, how could this happen? How could this happen? Every time you see some tragedy on the news, every time somebody turns out to be a killer or a murderer or whatever else, what do people always say? He just seems so normal. I, I, I never expected. They just seem so normal. She just seemed like a normal person to me. All of that is indicative of the fact that we are seeking out a fading, useless glory. A glory of works and a glory of the law. And even if it's a man-made law, even that makes it even more worse that we are seeking out a fading, useless glory. The Bible says all flesh is grass and it will fade like the flower of the field. We all fade eventually. And so if you want to find glory, you must use the law as it's meant to be used. And that is to push you to find God's grace in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be pushed to the gospel. The, the law is meant to push you to realize that you cannot make it on your own, that you cannot provide for yourself righteousness, that there is no glory in the works you can do, that they fade and that eventually they fail, and that we all look and think everybody ought to just be decent human beings, but for some reason or another, we just can't do it and it is because we need a righteousness outside ourselves the law is not meant to point you to itself the law was meant Paul says in Galatians as a tutor to point us eventually to Christ to teach us about our unrighteousness the law of the Lord is perfect we are the problem with the law and it's meant to point us to a righteousness that cannot fade and a glory that cannot fade. Here's the second point this morning. Second point is this. Don't be discouraged by rejection. Don't be discouraged by rejection. Look with me in verse 12. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Back into 11. For what was being brought to an end came with glory. If what was being brought to an end, that is the law, came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And since we have, verse 12, such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. I think Paul is arguing that, that Moses veiled his face so that people wouldn't see the fading glory. But their minds were hardened. God's people's minds were hardened. For this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Something I've learned is that there is very little in this world that we dislike more than rejection. 
Now, some of y'all, I don't know, you might like to be rejected. I guess some people might get some kind of sick pride about it eventually, you know. I've met pastors like that who, who somehow or another become prideful over the fact that they get rejected by, by the Lord's people over and over. They, they think they're so holy and so godly that God's people are rejecting them all the time. Maybe that's the case for some folks. But I hate to be rejected. You know, I've got a three-year-old son. And he doesn't know what planet he lives on. And, uh, you know, if I say, hey, do you love Daddy today? And he says, no, it hurts my feelings, you know? I just don't like to be rejected. I, I'm not, I, 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 we hate it. And whether it's not getting a job or a promotion or feeling left out or romantic rejection tends to, to be the worst for folks. We all know and fear the idea of rejection. In fact, there's a term in our culture and our society that describes this feeling. Have y'all heard of FOMO? Y'all heard of FOMO? Y'all know what this is? Anybody know? All right, I see some folks grinning. They get it. Fear of missing out. F-O-M-O, FOMO, fear of missing out. And uh, social media sort of fuels this phenomenon, right, where they, people are afraid that they're missing out on things. That's why you ought to be at church every Sunday. FOMO, you might miss out on something amazing. God, what if the sermon was good that Sunday and you weren't here? FOMO. We hate rejection. We hate to feel like we're missing out on something. We hate to feel like people are having fun without us or doing things without us and so in a passage about the glory of the gospel the unfading glory of the gospel you know Paul Paul really has to do some work here because if, if an unbelieving Jew is is reading this letter he might say yeah I mean Paul you can talk about the glory of this ministry all you want but I'm just going to tell you something they seem to follow Moses a little bit better than they're following Jesus that's an easy claim to make and, and, and so Paul needs to deal with this rejection. He, he needs to deal with the fact that people are rejecting, and God's people are rejecting the gospel. And I want you to think about how hard it is for us to see the gospel rejected. I, I, I think that's one of the reasons we don't do more evangelism, is we're embarrassed when people don't get saved. You know, as if it's us that does the saving as if it's us that does it. No, in, in fact, what, what Paul's saying here, imagine Paul, not only if it's so hard for us to, to see the gospel rejected, imagine Paul with his fellow countrymen, the, the, the people to whom the law originally came, rejecting the gospel. But Paul says, as we kick off this little section here, what does Paul say? He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. In other words, what Paul says is, my boldness as a minister and my boldness as a preacher does not depend on how many people are accepting the message, but my boldness as a minister and my boldness as a preacher are rooted in the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our boldness needs to rely on the glory of the gospel and not on who is or is not accepting it. And what Paul says is that there is a veil over the hearts of the people who are hearing it. There is a hardness to their hearts, and that is why they're rejecting the gospel. It's not because the gospel isn't worthy. It's not because the preaching isn't faithful. It's because of the hardness of their hearts. I think so often God's people 
read texts like these and they get a little nervous. Like when the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart or when the Bible talks about God giving people over to the passions of their flesh or here the hardness of heart and the hardness of the minds of the people of God to hear the gospel. And we start to get nervous and say, well, it, I mean, are these people hardening their hearts or is God hardening their hearts? And I think the answer to that question is yes. I think the answer to that question is yes. As, as time goes on, as we choose to, to harden our own hearts simultaneously, God begins to give us over to that hardness of heart. And, and I think we see here the fact that God has given his people over in this text to a hardness of mind and a hardness of heart where they are rejecting the gospel. Yet, we must preach the gospel no matter what. And, and we must recognize the glory that's in the gospel even when it doesn't seem successful by the world's standards. Uh, imagine how unsuccessful the early church seemed when its leaders were being tossed in jail over time when the apostles were being killed imagine how the, the disciples felt when Jesus died before he rose from the dead how unsuccessful the whole thing seemed and yet we cannot be discouraged in our believing and our preaching because of rejection we must follow Paul's model and be bold even when the message is rejected because that doesn't mean that there's not a glory in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must be the sort of people who are not discouraged by rejection. And I think that is the number one, one of the number one ways that God's people lose heart in living out and, and carrying out and delivering the gospel to the world is that rejection makes us downtrodden and down, downcast and, and makes us less bold in our witness. And yet, the very opposite thing should be true. That even though the gospel gets rejected, we ought to rely even more on God. And we ought to be even more bold in Christ. And that leads us to our last point this morning. We must embrace the unveiled glory of the gospel. We must embrace the unveiled glory of the gospel. All of this sermon is leading you. Don't look for glory in what you can do. And, and don't look for glory in your success or in worldly success. Where should we look for glory? Not in ourselves, but outside ourselves. We ought to look to God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory that we are seeking and the glory that we're looking for. We see, first of all, the glory of the lifted veil. Don't think for a moment that the only people with veiled hearts and veiled minds are are the Jewish people, the people of God in that respect. We are all veiled to the glory of the gospel through sin. It's exactly what veils their hearts is a hardness of heart, a sinfulness that refuses to see Jesus for who he is, their own Messiah. And the same thing is true for us who are not descended from Abraham. The same thing is true that it is only by God's grace that the veil is lifted for us to see Christ's glory. You see, we so often want to go back and think we're Christians because we're smart. We're Christians because we're better than others. We see things so much more clearly. And the, and the more we associate Christianity with a view of how the world works, the more likely we are to be self-righteous in our, in our following of Jesus. And yet it is God, it is Christ who lifts the veil. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit 
and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In other words, I believe this is a picture of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every believer. And when you turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted and you receive the Holy Spirit. And we see a glory here of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the word that Paul uses to sort of sum up the work of the Spirit in our hearts and lives is the word freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That is, I think Paul's talking about a freedom from the bondage to sin. This is similar, I think, to what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. When he talks about how he, he does the things he doesn't want to do and how the law leads him to sin more and more. Because as much as we may try to follow one part of the law, there's always going to be another part we can't follow on our own. And so Paul says, though, there's freedom in the Holy Spirit. He sets us free from the bondage to sin. He does what the law could not do because our flesh is weak. And the Spirit comes in and gives life. He, he, he gives life. He, he breathes life into our hearts. He transforms our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. We become more and more like Christ, thanks to the indwelling Holy Spirit. He goes on in verse 18, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The image that we are being transformed into is the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being made more and more like Christ. We are being transformed into His image. And so once the veil is lifted, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and then we are able to behold the glory of the Lord. In other words, the vista of our life changes radically. And what once seemed mundane is now infused with the glory of Christ because all things are inexorably moving and sliding toward the glory of the Lord of the universe, Jesus of Nazareth, who will come one day and reconcile all things to himself. And though even though we received a level of glory by being created in God's image, Paul is saying we are being transformed into an image of even greater glory. That is, we are being made to look and act and behave like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're being transformed into his image. And so the, the Spirit is at work within us, quickening us, making us alive, transforming us, and moving us from the glory of man to the glory of Christ. And what does that look like in your everyday life? What does this glory look like? How do we see this glory? What are the signposts along the way that are pointing you back to the glory you received at first and forward to the greater glory that lies ahead? They aren't always big and flashy. They aren't always glitzy and glamorous. Sometimes it's a simple act of hospitality. Sometimes you're being transformed into the glory of the image of Christ through a simple act of hospitality. And that's exactly right. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, brewing coffee, falling out pound cake, and being a friend to someone who needs a friend. Sometimes it's the ability to help someone else understand the Bible. That's right. Sometimes something you learned on a flannel graph 30 years ago, the Spirit will use today to help someone else in their walk. So often it's peace, it's patience, it's gentleness, 
It's love. It's kindness. It's self-control. It's faithfulness. Is there anything less glitzy and less glamorous than self-control? Than taming yourself? Holding back? No, our, our world says go for it. The world says you do you and, and you do all that you want to do and you do whatever makes you happy. But the Spirit is so often at work and the glory of God is often so present in simple, everyday things. Perhaps it's on a day when you can't, you barely feel like you can get out of bed. Somehow or another, God helps you find joy in dark days. Simple, everyday boring, uneventful things so often are more glorious than we could ever imagine. Look for the glory that's found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, I, I want to offer this invitation to you this morning. I believe if you'll turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus Christ, I believe you will be saved. And second of all, you may be a believer and you may say, Pastor, I just need a place and some time to pray. I need some time to recalibrate my, my vision of what glory really looks like. This altar is open to you. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you for the glory that's brewing so oftentimes just under the surface of the mundane and practical things that are going on in our life. And God, my hope and my prayer is that your indwelling Holy Spirit among your people would lead us to see that and that we would not lose heart as we continue to be transformed from one glory to another by the power of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.